The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. From the start of this service to this point, you have heard the gospel all through it. The sermon isn't necessarily like, oh, now we get, no. The sermon is just part of what we have been already doing, and I hope you've been rejoicing in, hoping in, and if you do not know this wonderful, marvelous love of Jesus, that now you're asking questions about how do I get to that, and that I can uh, be of some help right now, whatever your need might be, to get to the marvelous, wonderful love of Jesus Christ. I want to read the just a very small portion of what we'll be covering from Mark 14, uh, from verse 53, and we're going to go all the way to the first verse of chapter uh, 15, but I'm going to read just Mark 14, uh, 53 through 54. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would indeed uh, be acceptable, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. As I drive around our communities, I have noticed an increased solidarity of defiance against God, an increased solidarity of defiance against God. I must admit that what I see often discourages me and uh, creates space for doubt to worm its way in, even as I pray for our communities to once again become substantially Christian but in those struggles, I'm often reminded of a passage by Tolkien in The Return of the King. The setting is the city of Gondor, which is under siege, and all hope appears to be lost. Listen, I'm going to read just a brief passage as Tolkien paints a picture with words. He writes, outside there was a starless blackness as Gandalf with Pippin beside him, bearing a small torch, made his way to their lodging. They did not speak until they were behind closed doors. Then at last Pippin took Gandalf's hand. Tell me, he said, is there any hope? For Frodo, I mean, or at least mostly for Frodo. And Gandalf put his hand on Pippin's head. There never was much hope, he answered. Just a fool's hope, as I have been told. We might say that there's only a fool's hope as we descend with Jesus into the starless blackness of this holy night of betrayal. Jesus, who has been the hero of Mark's story from the outset, has been arrested and by all accounts it appears that the murderous intent of the religious elite will indeed succeed. We 
You should remember that it was only a few days earlier, which would have been almost a month since I preached on this passage, but in real time, only a few days earlier had the chief priest and scribes sought by stealth to take Jesus and to kill him. And it now appears that they will succeed in their plan. If we could somehow go back in time, kind of look into the, through a window into that dimly lit room, what we would see is Jesus standing alone at the center of it all. And if there was some way we could go into that room and take the hand of Jesus, we might ask like Pippin, is there hope? Is there any hope? But I believe the response of Jesus would be quite different than that of Gandalf's reply to Pippin. I believe that Jesus would put his hand on our, our heads and say, you have so much more than a fool's hope because although, yes, in the fulfillment of scriptures, I will be struck down, you all will be scattered. The scripture that promises my resurrection will also be fulfilled I will go ahead of you, I will be in Galilee, and there you will encounter me and encounter the power of my salvation. It's kind of that little bit of introduction. Let me, let me start the sermon proper by saying that if you are ever on trial, self-incrimination is not a good strategy. So I am told. As we enter into the trial phase of Mark's stories, uh, story, it appears that Jesus incriminates himself when he quotes Daniel chapter number 7. He quotes it in response to a direct question by the high priest. There in verse 62, Jesus says, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. But let me remind us, as I stated last week, Jesus is not the one on trial. Instead, like Moses of old, Jesus stands between the dead and the living as he announces God's mercy and the reality of God's judgment. And why, why does he do this? It is because all of humanity is being called into an account by God. And the only way for humanity to be saved is for Jesus then to act on its behalf. And as the decisive event of the entire cosmos is about to take place in what is most certainly the most important week in all of human history, Jesus injects what J. Brandon Meeks calls in his book on preaching a potent dose of reality into those who think they have the mysteries of God all figured out. Here in that room are the learned, educated men of Israel. They think they have all the mysteries of God figured out, and Jesus injects a potent dose of reality. Which, by the way, he's doing this morning to all of us who sometimes think we have all the mysteries of God figured out. Jesus steps in and says, well, what about this? Yeah. 
the announcement of mercy and judgment found in that messianic claim, this announcement set against the failure, the abject failure of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people. And their failure is really rooted in what we might call an ends justifies the means kind of thinking. You see, this group of men believe that they are holding the Jewish faith together. That it is dependent upon them to keep the nation of Israel intact according to their understanding of the law. And they will go to any length to try to make that happen. In fact, they would even go to the length of destroying what they think they're trying to preserve. The hypocrisy is obvious. As witnesses are called in verse number 56, they are identified by Mark as false witnesses against Jesus. Look at verse 55, the chief priest, the whole council, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so in order to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, they have to first break the eighth commandment, which is what? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Such is the deception of the ends justifies the means kind of thinking. Their failure of obedience is only part of the drama that Mark tells us about as the failure of Peter is seen um, in verses 50, or verses number, hang on just a second. I think it's 66 and following as Peter's in the courtyard. Now remember, false witness is not only about giving uh, a lie, a, a testimony that's not true against somebody, but it's also about withholding testimony that is true about somebody. And here we have in uh, verse 66, Peter below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looks at him and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out uh, the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly, you are one of them. You're a Galilean. In verse 71, what do we have? But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said. You see, Peter was the one who said, even though everybody else is going to fail, I'm not going to fail. I'll be right with you, Jesus. And we should remember that Jesus had already warned Peter about his pride when he said to him, get behind me, Satan, there on the plains of Caesarea Philippi. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus warned Peter in the upper room and warned Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, your spirit seems to be willing, but your flesh is weak. 
And when Jesus is betrayed by Judas there in the garden scene, John the Apostle tells us in his gospel that it was Peter who cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus then says to Peter, those who will live by the sword will die by the sword. You see, like the religious leaders who are on trial, Peter is on trial, along with the rest of humanity, you and I included. But we should remember what Jesus also said to Peter. Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, now, in both cases, in the case of the religious leaders and the case of Peter, evil is unleashed. It's like a hurricane-forced wind that wants to destroy everything in its path. And we might have to ask, how can it ever be stopped? Because it continues to blow with force today. If we only have a fool's hope, all indeed is lost unless Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, the Son of Man, that Daniel prophesied about. Look, look at the exchange between Jesus and the high priest in, um, in verse number 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus directly, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Are you the Son of Man? Are you the Christ? Are you the Blessed One? The answer that Jesus gives opens then the door for the council to condemn him to death for the sin of blasphemy. But in that declaration, the hope of all humanity rests. It rests on this one issue. Is Jesus Christ the one that Daniel foresaw? Is Jesus Christ the one that Daniel wrote about? Is Jesus Christ the one who would come on the clouds of heaven, who would receive from the Ancient of Days a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and all nations and all languages would serve him? Is Jesus Christ the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, a dominion that will not pass away? Is Jesus Christ the one who has a kingdom that will never be destroyed? And if he is who he says he is, then is our faith resting on him? Is our faith resting on his power then? Is our faith resting on Jesus and Jesus alone? This is not just a question in the dimly lit room of the Sanhedrin court. It is a question for this room today. It is a question for each and every person who hears me talk today. Whether you know a lot about the Bible, you know nothing about the Bible, this is the question for your life. Who is Jesus? And what will you do with him? Throughout his gospel, Mark has provided us with proof that Jesus is exactly the one that Daniel wrote about. Now, in contrast to the false witnesses whose testimonies cannot find agreement, all through Mark's gospel, we have testimonies of agreement, including 
the authoritative witness of God the Father and God the Spirit at the baptism of Christ when God the Father says, this is my much-loved Son. What are we to do? Listen to Him. The Spirit rests upon Jesus and the ministry of Jesus Christ is described as a Spirit-empowered ministry that goes forth. John the Baptist prophesies as the last great prophet of the Old Testament, saying this is the one that has been promised to come. You better pay attention to him. And then we have the authoritative witness that is both comprehensive and uh, cohesive in Jesus Christ himself through divinely empowered miracles, deliverances, his teaching, his steady life of unwavering obedience, his endurance in suffering and hardship, no further evidence is needed for you to make a decision about Jesus Christ. No further evidence is needed for you and I to place our faith in Jesus Christ, to surrender our lives wholly to Jesus Christ. He is exactly the one he claims to be. But if you reject that mercy, then you descend further into the darkness of judgment. You, you, you may still come to church. You still may look Christian. But if it's within your heart to keep turning away and turning away, you will descend further into the condemnation of darkness into what uh, the Bible describes as outer darkness. A darkness from which people cannot be recovered. What does this darkness look like? Well, chapter 14 tells us. It's Peter whose pride is so debilitating that he can't even muster up the courage to stand up to a servant girl. The darkness looks like the religious leaders who are so deceived they cannot discern how they are breaking commandments left and right, thinking they're preserving their faith. The darkness is found in the brutality of humans who make a fist and strike the face of a man for no other reason than to be cruel. The darkness is growing darker as those with power dehumanize and humiliate Jesus as they spit on him, cover his face, and mock him. And then from chapter 14 into chapter 15, the darkness moves into the morning light as the chief priest held consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And when they deliver him over, they give him over to the most brutal kind of death ever known to, to mankind. Death by crucifixion. And it's at this point of the story, it would, we would do well to find ourselves in the story. Where are we in this story? Lest we run the risk of being like the Quaker I read about this week. Maybe you heard about the Quaker who said to his wife, I have sometimes thought that there were none righteous in this town, 
none devout, none who would be welcomed into God's heaven, save for me and thee, though lately I am not so sure about thee. This is how insidious the power of evil is to deceive and how susceptible we are to it. So let me ask an uncomfortable question that I've asked myself. Which of the commandments did you break this past week? How did you sin in thought, word, and in deed, in what you did and what you left undone? Do you still have the capacity to see yourself as a miserable sinner, or have you inoculated yourself against such thoughts with self-righteousness because you too think that the ends justify the means? If it is true, as J. Brandon Meeks writes, that sermons are glimpses into glory and that to hear a sermon should be to feel the wind of heaven in your face, then the opposite must be felt in a sermon as well. We must feel our sin so that when we see the glimpse of glory and we feel the wind of heaven in our face, we do what Peter does after the rooster crows uh, he does what? He breaks down. What does he do? What? What does he do? He weeps. He weeps. He weeps. Let us learn again to weep over our sin. Let us learn again to weep over our sin as we realize the power of salvation comes through the one who stood at the center of it all and remained faithful. You see, the greater exodus that we read about is now centrally located in Jesus Christ. And it asks this question then, have you repented of your sins? Have you believed the gospel? Have you been delivered out of the darkness? And are you living in the light of Jesus Christ? What do you do with your shame? What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with the burden of your sin other than say, Oh God, in the name of Jesus, deliver me. And that you do it every day. All day long. As the priest was quoted as saying, When he wakes up, thank God I have another day to repent of my sins. Oh, that we would live with that kind of a mindset. Because just as the greater exodus now centrally located in Jesus Christ, there's really no other way for us to experience the kind of transformation that Paul envisions in 2 Corinthians outside of the power of the gospel. Because a power is needed that is infinitely greater than the power of evil, and yet this power is so filled with love that it woos us and it draws us and it brings us into real hope. You see, there is hope. It's not a fool's hope. It's the hope of Jesus who is standing now today in the center, as it were, of all humanity in his church. And he has overcome evil by doing good and he has gifted to the church the power of the Holy Spirit that we today can proclaim in this room the same thing, that Jesus is the hope of all humanity he is the Son of Man. He came in power. He is coming in power once again to judge the living 
and the dead. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Well, that's my exposition of the first stage of the trial of Jesus, but it's not the end of the sermon. Don't get too excited yet. Because before I close, I want to shepherd us towards some application as we did last week as it relates to the church. And we should remember when the first readers of Mark's gospel, most likely in Rome, read the gospel, they weren't reading it so much evangelistically as they were reading it as a manual for discipleship. How do we live for Christ in a day and age when there is this defiance against God. Where do we find the church in this passage? Well, I would suggest that first, we see that just as Jesus was unjustly condemned by the religious leaders of his day, so the church, and I'm not just talking about America, I'm talking about the church in the world is being condemned in the time in which we live. Whether it's the condemnation of mockery or rejection or just ignoring or it's an outright attack against the church, we should re remember that evil is still out to destroy. And it still is destroying. But, but what we see in this passage is that when we feel the weight of that attack, when we feel like we're being marginalized and we're being shoved into the corner, let's not try to defend ourselves lest we end up like Peter. Let's do what we learned from the book of Acts and let's defend the name of Jesus Christ. Let God be true and every man a liar. I see the church in a second way in this passage. Just as Jesus found his identity and mission in the scriptures, we too must constantly be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ as reminded, as revealed to us by the Spirit in the scriptures. As Paul taught, let us remember that we are in Christ, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. As we go out into this world, let us remember our baptism. Let us remember who we are in Jesus Christ, just as Jesus knew who he was in this time of trial and in this time of testing. And I see the church in a third way. While it, while it is true that all of the disciples did forsake Jesus, we need to remember that there were still faithful disciples who did not. The women who followed Jesus played the most prominent role, but there were others as well. And we should remember that Jesus recovered his disciples after his resurrection which means this, for the church, we need to extend every grace and mercy to our brothers and sisters who struggle, who are not always as faithful as they wish they could be or want to be. We need to pray one for another. I've got two or three people in my mind that I am so burdened for that they would return to Jesus. I'm sure all of us in this room on some level have family members, people we love, we care about, who either have, have, have made it clear they're not a Christian or maybe have drifted away from Jesus. And let us be careful 
to apply what Jesus applies to those who forsook him in the hour of need. And to be faithful, to love, and by God's grace see people brought back into the fold. Jesus was praying for Peter even as Peter was denying him. And let us not lose heart in our prayers. And then finally, in the name of Jesus, we too stand between the dead and the living. And as we do, we bear witness to the world in which we live. Jesus is delivered over to the Roman authorities, which is to say that Jesus now stands as a witness to the world. The forgiveness of sins that the world so desperately needed now rests on his obedience as he goes forth to his cross. And we then are called to take up his cross and do what? Follow him. Follow him, taking up his cross. We follow him out into the world. And as we do, we do it with prayer for the world in which we live. We pray for perseverance in holiness. We pray for perseverance in proclaiming the good news that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for sins. And so yes, as I, as I drive around our communities and I see an increase of defiance, a solidarity of defiance against God. I battle against doubt by remembering that hope is not found in anything I do, but in everything that Jesus, the Son of Man, has done because all authority rests on him. And you know what? It's my great joy to tell you that again today. It is my great joy to tell you that through Faith in Jesus, you too can come to a place of real hope. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word as it has gone out today here and down at St. James in the early service. And Father, I pray that for each and every person who needs hope in this room, that they would find that hope in you. your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.